Just kidding. Good to have you here with us tonight. We're going to start a new series of studies in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Uh, where is that? Well, it's in the Bible. It's uh, in the Old Testament. It's between the book of Nahum or Nahum or Nahum and, uh, and Zephaniah. So it's getting toward the end of the Old Testament. Now, in my Bible, it's on page 1419, but I'm pretty sure it's different on yours. Book of Habakkuk. All right. I'm, I'm saying it that way because that's actually the Hebrew pronunciation. Habakkuk. It's not a B. You know, in the English, it's B, but it's actually more of a V, a v sound. Habakkuk. Like if you're telling somebody have a cookie, uh, but don't add the last you know, syllable. So it's Habakkuk, chapter 1. And we're going to read through verses uh, 1 through 4 here at the beginning. We'll get down to the end of verse 11. Then we're going to come back to some of that section next time uh, because we have to establish a little bit of an introduction here tonight for this, this uh, three-chapter uh, book by Havakuk. Let's read the, the passage, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> it begins, the burden which Havakuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and, and there, are, there are that rise up strife and contention. And therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked does compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. What an interesting way to begin a prophecy in a book. But as our time spent in the book of Obadiah taught us a lot about the issue of pride and its destructive nature in the hearts of people, both unbeliever as well as believer, the book of Habakkuk will strengthen our understanding about walking by faith. The time frame of the writing of this book appears to be around the reign of King Jehoiakim, who ruled the southern kingdom of Judah from 609 BC to 598 BC. Now, there are other thoughts that it could have been earlier than that, but uh, these seem to be more of the proper dates for what is taking place, and we'll see that as we go along in our study. But if you know anything about Jehoiakim, who was one of the sons of Josiah, Jehoiakim was an evil king who ruled for 11 years, leading Judah in a downward spiral that began with the reign of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, and continued until they were finally brought into captivity by the Babylonians 
in 586 BC. And that happened while Zedekiah was the king of Judah. The only bright spot throughout all of this time happened during the reign of Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim, but it was too little, too late. The wickedness and corruption of the leaders, the priests, and the common people in Judah was not going to be dealt with, as we shall see in our study of this book. I think it would help us to understand as well that there were two kingdoms at this time, two kingdoms out of one kingdom. The kingdom of Israel was the kingdom, of, or the northern kingdom, made up of ten tribes. And uh, they established their place of worship, not in Jerusalem as it should have been, but actually in a place called Dan. And that was up in the northern region of the land. And all the kings, all the kings of Israel, the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, all of them were evil. All of them had walked away from God and led the people away from God. The southern kingdom of, of Israel was called the kingdom of Judah, made up of two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. In those two tribes came forth out of the tribe of Judah good kings and bad kings. So there were times of, of good taking place, and then they would revert back to falling away. So it gives you a little bit of an indication of what happens. But you see, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, was, was, was attacked and, and conquered by the Assyrians. And they took the uh, kingdom of Israel into, that northern kingdom of Israel, into captivity a few, uh, many years earlier. And while Judah was hanging on, eventually it gave way completely to their own uh, captivity with the Babylonians. So that's just, just a little broad history there for you to understand. But the wickedness, and this is what we need to remember, the wickedness and the corruption of the leaders and the priests and the common people in Judah was going to have to be dealt with, as we shall see here in the book of Habakkuk. Now Habakkuk is going to be asking the Lord questions, some questions that we ask the Lord every day. Why and how? Why are these things happening and how can you let this happen? And like in the book of Job, the conclusion will be quite significant because it doesn't necessarily tell us completely the hows and the whys of God. And I think that we learn as, as, as Christians that uh, many times we can ask the questions why and how and never really get the answers that we want. But that's okay. We have to learn that that's okay. Y'all understand what I'm saying, right? That we have to learn that you know, sometimes we ask why and it, it, the Lord says, I'm not going to answer the way you want me to answer but when I do answer you, it's going to be something that you'll be better able to understand and better able to receive. Because everything that God does for us is out of love. He loves us that much. And, and let me say something interesting here, that, that he loves us so much that sometimes he won't answer our questions. It's better that he doesn't. It's better that he shows us where he wants us to go, what he wants us to do, where he wants us to be.
Anyway, all that in, in mind, what it leads us to, both in our lives and in the life of Habakkuk and, and the children of, of Judah, is that we must walk by faith and not by sight. We must walk by faith and not by sight. So even these particular lessons that we learn from the questions that we may ask God, the more we grow in walking in faith and the more we grow in maturity by walking in faith, we come to realize that it's best not to ask. It's best to trust. So with that said, let's look once again at verse 1 of our text. <clears throat> and verse 1 is... is <clears throat> something that we'll, we'll come back to in just a minute. I'm just going to kind of go over this uh, briefly. <clears throat> but the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, the name Habakkuk, by the way, means one who embraces. It could also mean one who is embraced. But as we shall see at the end of this book, this prophet, which we don't know much else about, except that he is a prophet, will embrace the Lord. And he will begin to look to God as the strength and the joy of his life. But until then, we go on to verse 2, and when we see what verse 1 says, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, immediately we hear the words of the prophet to God. This is actually one of the only times that we see one of the prophets interviewing God. And he says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save. So take notice how this prophet begins, not with praise unto God, but with a complaint against the Lord about what he sees happening around him. And God isn't doing anything about it, see. Have you ever been there where you see things happening in this world and you say, God, where are you? Why aren't you taking care of this? If I were you, I'd be blasting these people. I'd be turning them into little piles of ashes. Right? I mean, don't tell me I'm the only one that's ever gone through that little exercise in faith. <laughs> oh, man, sometimes we see things happening and we ask the question, God, didn't you see that? And by the way, Lord, I was praying and you didn't hear me. In other words, the Lord isn't answering Habakkuk's prayer. But let's be very careful here. Because it's easy to fall into that condition of complaining about what God is not doing instead of praising him for what he is doing. We could easily come to the same conclusion as Habakkuk, that God isn't doing anything. He isn't working. And we will be sorely wrong. What this prophet will discover is that God is always working even though he might not see things happening the way he wants to see things happen. That's a lesson for all of us. Because I would surely like to see things happen in the present time in our country, in the church of Jesus Christ, 
in our communities, in, around the world. I mean, we're thinking, where, God, where are you? Now, now Lord, I, every week I tell people you're in control, but man, it's hard to prove that here, right? I'd be, I'd be so wrong to say the stuff like that. You see, the maxim is always clear and true. God is still and will always be in control. Do you know why we know he's in control? Because we have his word, and his word is complete, and he's even told us what's happening now and what's going to happen, and the fact that he says and promised that Jesus is coming again. And if every prophecy about Jesus first coming to this earth came to pass, which, it, which they did, every prophecy that talks about his second coming is going to come to pass as well. So we know he's in control. So understand that God is working even today. He may not be going as fast as we'd like him to. He may not always be doing what we want him to do, but he is God and he knows what is best for us. Now see, here's, a, here's another thing about God that is just a... And I've always said, you know, the word awesome really should only be applied to God because he is awesome in all of his ways. And the very fact of the matter is that every one of us here, if it was just us on this earth, and I'm not going to count y'all, but if it was just us, you know, all of us as individuals, God is dealing with, but he knows every one of us and he's dealing with every one of us, each and every one of us individually. And some of us are family, our little, our, you know, little, our family units. And in our family units, God is dealing with each and every one of us in our family units and he's dealing with our families. And, and then wherever we all go, he's, he's aware of what we do. And, 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 and so, you know, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a pretty good indication that if he can do that with just us here, can you imagine him doing it in all of the world? and being in control, and never crossing himself in the sense that he, he's, he's unsure what he's doing. You know, God doesn't sit up in, in the heavens like wondering today, like, boy, did I make a mistake? Because he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes. God never worries. God's never surprised. He has seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end and everything in between. He's seen the whole parade. A few weeks ago when you went down to the parade, uh, you know, on, on Thursday, the Thanksgiving, you know, you only saw a little bit of the parade at one time. He sees it all at once. He saw it already. The end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. That's how awesome our God is. And all of that, it, it, he knows what's best for each and every one of us at the moment in time that we need to have his wisdom, he gives it to us. At the moment in time that we need his blessing, he gives it to us. At the moment in time that we are hurting and we need to hear his voice or we need to know that he's there, he always makes himself known. He does. When we, could look, when we quit looking at ourselves and the problem bigger than God and start looking at the God that's bigger than all of our problems. So here's how Havakuk crying out to God saying, How long, O oh Lord, 
Shall I cry to you and you will not hear? I mean, that is quite an accusation leveled on the Lord. But just for a moment, consider the ungodly and the perverse landscape that the prophet was called upon to observe. Did you notice back in verse 1 that it's, it's called a burden? The burden? <laughs> which Habakkuk or Habakkuk, the, the prophet, did see? The burden which he did see? And he was appointed to see with his very own eyes? The word burden there, by the way, gives us indication that judgments will come upon Israel and her enemies. Now, if you've read the book already, you realize that those judgments will come upon Israel first. That, that is the whole purpose here of this, of this vision and, and burden given to Havakuk. It's about his people. Then he'll, he'll speak about the enemy and what the enemy's role in all of this is going to be and what he's going to do with the enemy. But before that, it's his people. And the word burden there will reflect the judgments that are going to come upon Israel, but also upon her enemy. So first and foremost, this prophet is lamenting over the sin of his people before focusing attention upon the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. So now let's go to verse 3, and here it says, Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. And therefore the law is slacked, I'll explain that because that's really important. Therefore the law is slacked and judgment does never go forth. For the wicked does compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Wrong judgments will come because of the actions of the wicked against the righteous. But how bad could Judah have been? How bad could this nation that, that should have known better because they had the law of God, they knew the law of God, they should have known the law of God, but they weren't standing upon the law of God for the most part. How bad could they have been? It needs to be noted that Habakkuk also lived during the time of the good king Josiah, who I mentioned earlier. It may very well be that Habakkuk began his ministry during the reign of Josiah and therefore saw the people go through a revival of sorts. He already seen some good taking place in his land. I want you to consider for a moment Josiah's background. We need to understand this. This is all, this is all introductory for us to understand where Habakkuk is. If you turn to 2 Chronicles 34 in your Bibles, 2 Chronicles 34 in your Bibles, and look at verses 1 through 3. It talks about Josiah the king. And it tells us Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. I think that's, that's pretty young. He was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years, one in 30 years. But notice the next phrase, because this is the most important phrase about Josiah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. He wasn't swayed in any direction except to go forward toward God and to do the things that would honor God. In verse 3 it says, For in the eighth year of his reign, which would have made him 16, right? For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. He began to seek after God. 
I want you to notice the personal aspect of seeking after God. He began to seek after God. You see, too many people, even theologians, will tell you, oh, listen, you know, the, the, the issue of Israel and being saved and all, it's really just a very, a very corporate issue. You know, it's, a, it's, it's all about them as a, as, a, as a nation. Folks, from the very beginning, it's always been about a personal relationship and a personal walk with God. It always has been. Yes, there is a nation known as Israel. And by the way, what do we have today but the church, the church of Jesus Christ? But we're all first and foremost coming to the Lord primarily on a personal, uh, uh, on a personal level to receive the Lord Jesus and to, and, 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 and in essence, make him the, the king and the Lord of his, our lives. And then we become a member of the church. Now we're a part of the body of Christ, yes. But still, each and every one of us came individually. We weren't born into the church. We can't ever say, you know, well, I was born a Christian. No, you weren't. You were born a sinner. That's what the Bible says. So you have to understand that aspect. So this is a good way of seeing it in, in a good king, that he began to seek after the God of David, his father. And in the 12th year, the second part of the verse, in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places. What were the high places? Those were the areas where people went to worship idols. And they established their altars for idols. He says they purged, they cleansed out, you know, the, uh, the high places in Jerusalem and the groves. The groves were the trees. And the groves, you know, they worshiped the trees, right? And, and uh, the carved images and, and the molten images. So at 20 years of age, after ordering the temple to be remodeled, a copy of the law was found. I'm, I'm just kind of rushing through the history here. So at the age of 20, he had ordered the temple to be remodeled. And as they're doing this work, a copy of the law was found. Go down to verse 34 now in the same chapter. Verse 34. I'm sorry, verse 14 in chapter 34. 2 Chronicles 34, 14. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, now that was actually for the building of the, of the, of the temple or the remodeling of the temple. It says, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Read down or go down to verse 18. I'm just, just shortening our time with this. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the law, that he rent his clothes. In other words, he tore his, he tore his robe. He tore his clothes, which was a sign of, of mourning, a sign of great distress and mourning. And then it says in verse 20, And the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. 
the impact of the law of God, the impact of the word of God upon the heart of this young king, Josiah. He wept. And when you read through that whole passage there in in chapter 34, you realize he wept before the Lord. And he would call the people to seek the Lord. And then he began to institute the festivals and the feasts in Israel once again. Obviously, they weren't keeping those things any longer. So now there seemed, and I emphasize seemed, there seemed to be a great revival in Judah. We certainly know there was a revival in the heart of Josiah. But there seemed to be this revival now in Judah, but but eventually just attending festivals and services didn't necessarily mean that their hearts were right with the Lord. And I'm going to say that about a lot of times people coming to church and just thinking that by coming to church that that's all you need to do. It isn't about attendance. I mean, attendance is good. We should, we should attend the, the services, not because we're forced to, but because we want to. We come to worship services to worship the Lord, not because we're forced to do it, but because we want to do it. So understand that people can go through the motions outwardly without responding to the Lord personally. And this ended up being the case after Josiah's reign. And so the prophets Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and others were tasked tasked with calling the people to true spirituality. Calling the people to true spirituality, not just religiosity. It isn't about being religious. It is about having a true and proper relationship with the God who created us. A true relationship with God. And by the way, that sort of spirituality cannot be legislated. It cannot be legislated. You cannot force people to believe something. I mean, that's, that experience has been tried. You can't legislate spirituality. It has to come from the heart. Let's take Islam, for example, for just a moment, and, and we'll probably come back to this thought in, a, in our time throughout this book. But as, 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 a, as a religion, now, you know, Islam, we've talked about many times about the fact that it's, it's, it's more a government, it's more of a political government than it is a religious thing, but, but the religion is a, a, a tremendous part of it. Yet, what, what they seek to do worldwide. Now remember, you know, we've seen a lot of stuff talk, a lot of talk about Islam today and, you know, Muslims coming into the, the country and we're trying to protect our nation. We should be protecting our people and all of that. And we say, well, there's some, there's, there's some peaceful, if you look at the whole of that religion, they have something called a dawah. The dawah is their, their duty. Their duty is to tell non-Muslims about Allah and bring them to Allah and to, and to Islam. That's their duty. That's all Muslims, not just some. 
not just the religious. They're all supposed to be religious. That's, that leads to this one world ummah, which is domination. I'm just telling you what that's, that's, what, they, that's what they study. That's what they, they all study. Whether Shia, Sunni, Wahhabi, whatever. That, this is what Muslim, uh, Islam is about. And there's, it's brought into every nation, going into every nation to tell people this is what we, we want. You know, if you want a peaceful Islam, peaceful Islam it can only be that when you accept Allah as God and, and Muhammad as the prophet. That's, that's how you become peaceful. That's it. Or else there is what they're called to do, which is even bring it by force. So you tell me if that kind of force makes it uh, something worthwhile to want to live by worldwide. You see how scary that is? And what does Jesus tell us? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And he's the one that went to the cross and died on our behalf for us. That if we accept and tru truly accept the truth about Jesus Christ and confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that he's risen from the dead, you shall be saved. What a difference. And now you are not forced to worship the Lord. You want to worship the Lord. And you want to be obedient. And you want to give. And you want to serve. I've gotten way behind on my schedule here. But I feel it's important to, to emphasize these things. So you can see that there is a true spirituality that we need to aim toward and, 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 and achieve. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. Not by our might, but by his spirit. So what is needed then is regeneration, not reformation. Regeneration is being born again. And what is it that Jesus talked about? What is it that the apostles preach? What is it that we are to tell people? You must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. If you want to enter into the kingdom of God. So it isn't just reforming your ways. It's being completely changed. Not being conformed, but being transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. All right. So with all of that in mind, let's go back to the prophets. Because the prophets have stated these things for us. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. I'd, I'd read all of chapter 31 when you get a chance tonight, if you can, on your evening reading before you go to bed. By the way, don't do it in bed because you won't even read verse, verse 2. You'll, you'll fall asleep in verse 1. But in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, it says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. It, it is a personal issue. It is a personal matter that affects the heart. Not just the mind, but the heart. Consider, if you will, the, uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 27, where, where the Lord is saying, for I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Do you know that he's already begun that process? 
And then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Why the stony heart? Because the stony heart is, is, is just a stone. It's dead. So we need a heart of flesh so we can be alive again, you know. So this is the born-again issue. And then in verse 27 it says, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. That is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When you get back to the New Testament and, and the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives where? In me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he tells the, the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. All things will become new. Everything's new when we come to Christ. We die to self. We live unto Christ. So getting back to Habakkuk, King Josiah now is exiting the stage here, and in comes King Jehoiakim. Now, before, you know, in between Josiah and Jehoiakim was another son, Jehoiada of, of uh, uh, Josiah, but uh, King Pharaoh Necho from Egypt, you know, he, he kind of, you know, took him out of power there and placed Jehoiakim in, 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 in his stead. You just have to read the, you know, the whole passage. We'll, we'll see where that is in just a moment. But here comes King Jehoiakim, who's the center of what we're talking about that leads uh, into that uh, necessity for the judgment to come to Israel or to Judah. Second Kings chapter 23, if you will. Second Kings 23, verse 36. And we'll just look at two verses. It says, Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign. So he was 25 years old. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zebudah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. Uh, Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years uh, Well, I already read that. Verse 37. And he did that which was evil, notice, in the sight of the Lord. How different from his father who was... a a person who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So Jehoiakim did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now that wasn't Josiah, but all the others before that were evil in that same line. So we're told in the book of Jeremiah, and again, I'm just trying to shorten this whole picture, but we're told in the book of Jeremiah that the prophet Jehoiakim uh, was given a scroll which dealt with how he as a king should behave. But Jehoiakim despised that scroll. And so he took out his knife and, and he cut the scroll in pieces and he tossed the pieces into a fire. So Jeremiah wrote another scroll with, with an even stronger message. He had the same message but now an even stronger Rebuke. Let me just give you a, sh a short passage of this in Jeremiah 36, verses 28 through 32. Jeremiah says to Jehoiakim, Take thee again another roll, which is the scroll, and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah has burned. 
So he's, he's to take this, you know, do this, the same thing that he wrote, but then he says, and add some other stuff. And then he says, thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, thus saith the Lord, thou hast burned this roll, saying, why hast thou written therein, saying, the king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land and shall cause to cease from thence man and beast. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of, Jeho of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David. Now, this, this is a, a really heavy-duty matter, but we don't have time to go into it. But can you imagine that here in this line, anybody in the line of Jehoiakim, which is still in the line, uh, the priestly, or I should say the, uh, the kingly line, uh, he says, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out into, in the day to the heat and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah and all the evil, or all the evil that I have pronounced against them, but they hearkened not. And then took Jeremiah another roll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim king of Judah had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them many like words. It, all of this just to show you the heart of Jehoiakim, his, his, his hatred toward the things of God, the people of God, the prophets of God, the word of God. So getting back to Habakkuk, looking at verses 3 and 4 of our text there in Habakkuk, you can see why the prophet dropped this laundry list on the Lord. He said, Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that which uh, that rise up strife and, uh, raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slack. And judgment does never go forth, for the wicked does compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. That's the laundry list. He begins with iniquity. Y'all see that in verse 3? Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 3, y'all see it? Iniquity. It's the first thing mentioned. Iniquity is the word aven in, in the Hebrew. And it means sinful, unrighteous wickedness. Why? Do you show me this sinful and righteous wickedness? And cause me to behold grievance. The word grievance there is the word amal, which means perverse mischief and travail. Why do I have to look at this? Let me ask you all a question. Do you get tired of seeing the wickedness in this world? That's where Habakkuk is. And then the word spoiling. Do you see it there? Spoiling. It's the word should. Should in, in the Hebrew. It means violent destruction and robbery. And then he mentions violence. Interesting word, violence. It's the word Hamas. Hamas. Some of us know Hamas. Hamas actually is, a, is an acronym for, for a, a resistance movement, uh, uh, Islamic resistance movement that serves, uh, you know, as, as it just comes out of the Palestinian uh, cause and the Palestinian movement. They're the ones that are very actively attacking Israel from, from the Gaza area and, and, and uh, 
A lot of what we see happening today is Hamas. The word Hamas in the Hebrew means unjust violence. Unjust violence. Just an interesting connection. And then he mentions strife and contention, Riv and Madon. In verse 4, we're told now, and this is the important one that I don't want you to miss, but we're told here that the law is slacked. And it is the word pug in, in, in the Hebrew. It's an ugly word, pug. <laughs> but it means paralyzed. Slacked there means paralyzed. Numbed and feeble. Ineffective. Paralyzed. In a word, the law suffered a, a ten-count knockout. It's just out for the count. And because of that, justice could not prevail because the wicked knew how to hem the righteous in on all sides. Do you know that that's what's happening in the United States of America today? Because we haven't seen a, a leader stand up against this unrighteous attack of our justice system and the attack upon the foundations of this nation that were founded upon the Word of God, the Ten Commandments, and, 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 and really just all of the Scriptures. We're hemmed in on all sides. And those who are, in fact, the perpetrators are not going to receive their just due. At least not now. In other words, in Habakkuk's time, miscarriages of justice were the order of the day. Miscarriages of justice were the order of the day. Does this sound familiar? The judicial system of these United States is nearly as paralyzed today. Consider that today before an average capital offender is executed, and of course that's in certain states, but capital uh, offenders that are going to be executed, do you know that they will spend an average of 22 years in legal procedures at a cost of nearly $2 million per offender? That is outrageous. So in that passage there in verse 4 where it says, For the wicked does compass about the righteous, the wicked have hemmed in the righteous. Political correctness rules the day. If we try to take a stand on the word of God today, somewhere at some point in time, somebody is going to accuse us of a hate crime. It's already been done. It's already been done. Now more than ever before, although this has been going on over the past 50 years, humanistic, liberal, or progressive, they like to use the word progressive, it's just, it's just socialism, communism, but humanistic, liberal, or progressive concepts are being embraced by the majority of the people in our nation, starting even in our, in our public schools. But they're being embraced by the majority of the people in our nation, so much so that those who dare to stand up for morality and righteousness and pure living are considered archaic and even criminal. 
The wicked have fenced in the righteous. And we are just as much ready to explode as Habakkuk was and did. But the Lord has an answer. The Lord had an answer and he gives it directly to the prophet. Let's look at the, the, the passage. We're, we are going to come back to this, but let's look at the passage. It's, it's the next few verses, verses 5 through 11. This is God speaking. This is the Lord answering the accusation, as it were, but answering it in his own way. God says, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. Now, he's talking to Habakkuk, who is a believer. He's a believer, and he has faith in God. But he's wondering why God hasn't appeared in all of this stuff. But God says, hey, I'm going to do a work. And I'm going to do a work in such a way that you're, going to even not, you're not even going to believe it. Though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. The Chaldeans, if you remember the, uh, the origin uh, or the uh, origin of birth or the place of birth of, of one Avram, Abraham, he was from the Ur of the Chaldees, the area of Mesopotamia. By this time now, the Babylonian Empire was in this particular uh, area, at least as their home, as their home area. Later on, much later on in our modern times, of course, that same area had become uh, the nation of Iraq. But Iraq is an it is it's a modern name, but it's all the same. Babylon. We're going to talk more about that in the prof prophetic parts next week. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. Uh, the Babylonians just started to grow, and, they, and then, you know, once they, once they thought they were pretty strong to go out and, and conquer nations, they started doing that. And they are terrible and dreadful, he says. I'm going to use them. I'm going to use them. This is what God's saying. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment, their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are, are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that, is, that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change. And many people believe that it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Again, we'll talk about this next week. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this, his power, unto his God. First of all, God was working, but not according to Habakkuk's timetable, and would not be according to the prophet's plan. He wasn't going to work according to Habakkuk's plan. He was already working his own plan. And thus he is going to be astonished. In other words, the prophet is going to be astonished and amazed at what he is going to see in the plan of God. In effect, the Lord is saying to Habakkuk, don't be accusing me of not working and of not seeing. I am doing something, Habakkuk, and if I told you what it was that I was doing, even you wouldn't believe it. 
If the Lord told us, if the Lord told us what would happen in our lives five years from now, we wouldn't believe it. We would not believe it. We'd find some way to argue with God about it, though. We wouldn't believe it, but we'd find a way to argue with God about it. But you all know these words that I'm going to share with you from Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now let, let's, let's, let's learn this lesson, even though I think we've been probably learning this lesson for years. The Lord is not obliged. The Lord is not obliged to explain anything to us. Y'all believe that? I do. The Lord is not obliged to explain anything to us. We are to trust him. We're to trust him. We are to put our full weight of faith and dependency upon our God. We can trust him. No matter what we see happening in this world, no matter what we see happening all around us, in our neighborhoods, our communities, in our city, in our state, in our nation, we, we can trust the Lord. We can trust the Lord. What a beautiful thing it is to hear. I, and, and I hear testimonies almost every day of what God is doing to meet people's needs. I also hear a lot of, of people crying out to God because certain things have happened. Unexpected events have taken place. And, and all we can do is just say, listen, you need to, you need to trust the Lord. Every one, of us have, have go, every one of us have gone through that kind of experience where things have happened in our lives and yet God has been there. Even when it seemed like there wasn't a way. We used to sing a song, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He works in ways that we'll never see until we are in his presence forever. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. He said, be careful, which means be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer, and supplication with thanksgiving. Prayer, communication with God, supplication, lifting up our need for his supply, and with thanksgiving, giving thanks to God for it all. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding. I hope that we can make that real clear here in just a moment. But it says... And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In our troubled times, the Lord will not give us a peace 
that comes from our understanding. I want to say this slowly, clearly, and I want to repeat it. In our troubled times, the Lord will not give us a peace that comes from our understanding, but he will give us a peace into our hearts that will bypass our understanding. Yes, in other words, he will bypass our puny brains. Now, you may have a lot of brain. We all have brains. And thank God, our brains are a lot, you know, we have a lot more brains than, you know, let's say, you know, a squirrel or something like that. Even though sometimes we act like the squirrel. But in relation to God's wisdom and grace, they're puny. And we can't understand how God works. We don't need to understand how he works. We need to understand that he works and that he works on our behalf and that he never needs to sleep because he's always awake on our behalf. So let's pick up here next time to finish the chapter. We'll finish the chapter next week, but we'll look more carefully at the Babylonian factor for which the Lord will use them in bringing judgment upon his people. And we're also going to begin to start putting some prophetic issues together. But I want you to remember a few things, and I'm going to give you a, a, a couple of passages of Scripture this evening for, for your, your meditation, for you to meditate upon. 1 John chapter 1. Turn there. 1 John chapter 1 in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And notice what it says. John says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. You see, we, we, let us not be deceived into thinking that we can embrace God. Remember what Havakuk's name means? To embrace. Let us not be deceived into thinking that we can embrace God and embrace evil and iniquity at the same time. What was the problem in Israel? They went to synagogue or they went to the temple in the northern kingdom, they were just worshiping idols. But in the southern kingdom, at times they worshiped God, at times they didn't. But nonetheless, they were embracing God. And then they would go up to the high places and to the groves, and they would embrace evil and iniquity and idols. Folks, we can't do that. Notice what it says, and I'll close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. 
So as we learn the lesson in Obadiah of how destructive pride is, here's the lesson about, you know, here's the underlying lesson for us each and every day in the book of Habakkuk. And that is, we are to embrace God. We are to embrace his love and his mercy and his grace toward us. We are to embrace his word. We are to embrace his, his life, that our lives would be like his. We are to be holy. We are to be separate, separate from the world. Because when we try to embrace God and the world, what happens? We judge ourselves. We will judge ourselves, which means judgment will come upon us. God says, I don't want that for you. I want you to trust in me. I want you to believe in me. I want you to have faith in me. And faith is a strong, strong item and theme in the book of Habakkuk. For it is in this book that the theme of Paul's letter to the Romans becomes clear. The just shall live by faith. We will find that in Habakkuk. Paul will quote from it in Romans. The just shall live by faith. I stretched it out. We've got one minute to go. We made it. All right. We'll pick up here next time. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your mercies and your grace. And how blessed we are to know, Lord, that in spite of all that we see in this life, you are God and there is no other. You're in control and need no one else to put things into place. For you've already told us, Lord God, what the plan is. It begins with us trusting you in all things. So let it be that from this lesson we will trust in you and we will serve you and we will bless you until that day when we see Jesus Christ come for us and gather us together. Lord, I know that I've been saying this after every service, but that's, that's what it's all about. Jesus is coming. We need to be ready. And until he comes, help us, Lord, to continue to serve you in spirit and in truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand?